Well, today we are continuing our series entitled The Men Behind the Exodus, and we turn our attention this morning to a man named Caleb. While looking at Caleb's life and his role in the exodus of the Israelites, I found that Caleb scattered throughout uh, several pages of the books of the Old Testament written by his contemporary Moses and even continuing into the book of Joshua. So for our sermon today, I would like to focus on a particular narrative which has played a crucial role in the exodus or deliverance of God's people into the land that he had promised. Now, the Old Testament book of Numbers is what I believe to be one of the most overlooked and ignored book by modern Christians. I mean, just the name of it sounds unappealing, right? Numbers? Why don't we call it math? You know, it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't grab our attention like certain other books would. And so we oftenly ignored it But as I began to study it today, or this week, I was once again amazed by how active and living God's Word is. Even in the most boring titled book in Scripture, God is active. And it's our tendency as believers to overlook and dismiss some of the Old Testament, ancient documents. I'm sure there's several books that I could read out loud that you, you don't even remember were in there. It's our tendency to focus on Paul's epistles and the life of Jesus, and that's great. But it's a mistake. There's great value in each character letter found in the entirety of Scripture, in each letter found in the 66 books of the Bible. You know, in in my version, which is the English English Standard Version, there's 757,000 words over that, about 757,000 words. And each one of them has the breath of God in it. Did you know that? That all Scripture has been inspired by God, so each word of the Bible has God's breath in it. And we need to think of the Old Testament, or the Bible in entire, entirety, as a flower, right? So th- whatever your favorite flower is, we'll say a rose. Now, the rose is most beautiful when it's fully budded, right? Or it's fully bloomed, I mean. But to really appreciate it, if you had grown it yourself and had planted a seed and saw it grow and bud and open up, and then you finally see its beauty in entirety, that you would appreciate it all that much more. And that's what the Bible is. The Bible is, from beginning to end, all about this beautiful flower that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the beginning, that the whole narrative of Scripture, the seeds and the bud and the growth of it, is all pointing to Jesus. So today we're looking at these seeds that point to Jesus. And this morning we have the opportunity to revisit or visit for the first time a place in Scripture that directly dis- displays for us the kind of God we have. The book of Numbers is an account of the purposeful, forward-directedness of God's plan for his people. And I believe that this book of Numbers, as the rest of of Scripture does, points to Christ and tells the narrative of salvation through him and him alone. The general theme of the book of Numbers is worship. And we'll talk more about worship in a second. And we'll see today that we have within our very physical DNA, like scientific DNA, that God has created us with this desire or purpose to worship. That's all we do all day, in in essence. We all worship something. We find that this God-given gift is, unfortunately, if you're like me, being misused. If we were created to worship and we were created to worship God alone, then when we look at our lives that desire to worship is being placed in other things. 
Our scripture this morning speaks of a man of faith whose faith and worship were directed and placed solely on God. The Israelites had been delivered out of the bondage of the Egyptians. So they were slaves, and God promised to deliver them, and he used Moses and Aaron to deliver them out of the bondage and slavery of Pharaoh. And so now they're leaving Egypt, and they're in the wilderness, and two faithful servants, Caleb and Joshua, remained faithful and trusted and waited on the Lord. And so today we're going to be looking at the faith of Caleb And we have a hefty amount of scripture to cover this morning in order to give a sense of Caleb's faithfulness and God's reward of that faithfulness. So we're going to be jumping around from Numbers 13 and 14. So if you have a chance when you get home, I know this is a tough assignment because the book is called Numbers, but maybe give it a read, 13 and 14 in its entirety, and you'll have a better context of what is happening here. But we're going to begin in chapter 13, verse 25. Hear the word of God. So at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. All right, I'm going to stop there. So what's going on here is they are at the doorway, the doorstep of this promised land that God had promised them. And so the people, not not really trusting God, say, well, Lord, why why don't we go and just like check it out before we just march in there? So God says, okay, fine, whatever. You don't trust me, I'll, I'll give you that opportunity. And so he says, pick one guy, each from like 12 tribes of Israel. So the 12 men, 12 young men, and go check it out. Spy. Make sure it's the place that I've promised to give you. Okay? So that's what's going on here. So they go there, and for 40 days, it, they had to travel pretty far. So most of it was travel. They traveled probably about 500 miles or so, and then they check it out and they come back. That's where we're at. So at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron, this is the 12 spies, and to the congregation of people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to the, the whole congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. They told him, we came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruits. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The the Amalekites dwell in the land of Najeb. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we we will be able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not going to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw Nephilim, sons of Anak, who come from Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them, thus saith the Lord. So they come back and they say, this land looks awesome. It really does. It has everything we need. That term milk and honey is what God used to describe the land that that he had promised. And so they go there and they see, as God always does, that he was telling the truth, that that land that he wants to take them into is filled with milk and honey. And milk and honey is a term that says that this land is going to be filled with resources and abundance 
that this is a land that you can, will be able to dwell in and you'll be able to provide for all of your needs. It's beautiful. And so they come back with that report, and it's positive. It starts good. But then you see that they also saw in the land that there was a problem, that there was something that would cause a trial or tribulation in their life. They got distracted. So they saw that God had promised to do this. They believed that God had promised to do this. But then as soon as something disturbed that plan, they didn't trust him anymore. And so they came back and they said, Lord, I know you promised to, to give us this land, but do you know what the wor- world is throwing at us right now? We, we look like grasshoppers to these people in there. They're huge. If we march in there, they'll kill us. God had promised to deliver his people. He had done so. God's got them on the front doorstep of the promised land. And the people don't trust them. They don't trust God's plan. They look at their current situation. You say, you know what, God? You're not quite big enough to handle this. Can you believe these people? God had rescued them in such a magnificent and supernatural way. And still, they trust in what their own eyes see and not the plans of the creator of everything. Sound familiar? I know that's me. God has rescued us from internal damnation. And yet, I don't trust him. If I'm going to be honest, if you looked at my life, if I gave you a playback video of my life every day this week, you'd say, that's not a guy who trusts God. Yeah, there were moments. But look at how many other decisions I made this week that don't reflect somebody who places their faith in God. I'm a grumbling Israelite. I'm at the doorstep. He's shown me his son. And yet I say, yeah, but listen, I know that you've provided all these things, but it's just not making me feel good right now. This does. We don't feel the need to worship our God because we don't trust him. And if you don't feel the need to worship God with all of who you are, then you're being distracted. The main problem with all of mankind is the misplacement of our worship. We place our worship in distractions. Now, worship. Okay, we got to talk about that word real quick because that's, again, one of those words we use at church all the time, but do we really know what it means? Because when, if I asked a kid who hasn't really studied this, what is worship, they would say, it's singing songs at church. And that's not what worship is. That's a part of worship, but worship means you are applying worth and giving your attention to something that you deem worthy of yourself. So you are saying, whatever this thing is, I'm going to devote my time and attention to you. And so you could all think about something right now that what's the one thing you think about the most throughout the week? For some of us, it's our jobs, it's money, maybe it's our kids, our relationships, our marriages. And so whatever we're spending all of our time on is what we worship, because that's what we applied worth to. And so you see the problem. If we were created to worship God and we're worshiping other things, then we're being distracted. And it's causing us to not enter into his promised land. The problem with distractions, right? We all know what a distraction is. It grabs your attention, and then you miss out on what's really happening. 
It grabs you and says, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. This is a distraction. Hey, I'm right over here. Hey. And then you miss out on God's intended plan for you. Purpose. Guidance. Joy. Peace. Love. You know, God is sovereign. But that doesn't let us off the hook. We spend our whole lives placing our faith and worship in worldly distractions. We know we've been called to do something that we don't do. We've been called to worship God and we don't do it. And we know we've been called to not do something and that's what we do. Worship other things. Sin. We ignore the reality that there's a holy God who calls you to place your faith and worship in him. And he has shown us, even today in our scriptures, that in return he's going to lead you to a place that he has promised to lead you. A land filled with resources and abundance that will satisfy your every need. Yet we don't trust him. These Israelites became distracted by fear. This happens to us today. We often do not trust or place our faith in God because we fear that we don't know. We're scared of the unknown. And so we don't want to trust in God. See, our problem is, is we don't trust anything that's outside of our control. Right? We, you know, they say, they say, oh, take a leap of faith. Think about that phrase for a second. If, our, if, the, if the object of our faith is Jesus Christ, then we should have no problem trusting in him. But if he's not the object of our faith, then we are looking for distractions that will satisfy our temporary fears. This is a deep concept. I, I struggled over talking to you guys about this. But understand that our fear of, I don't know what's going to happen next, so I'm just going to do what's good for me right now, is the culture that we have, have created. We are a quick-fix society. I think about, you know, I'm a, a youth pastor here, and I think about kids texting. And a lot of their anxieties and things come from if they text somebody something important and they don't text back right away. And they have to wait for it. That's, that's, what, that's what we've become. We don't like waiting. We want the quick fix. The fear of the unknown consumes us. And instead of placing these fears and anxieties at the foot of the cross, we'd just rather wander around in the wilderness. We'd rather look for distractions that will bring us some sort of temporary relief. The Israelites said that they would actually rather go back into slavery. slavery. Later, later in this passage, they say, Lord, it would be better if we just go back to Egypt and we get, become slaves again. What? Lord, it would be better if we just go back in bondage and even die. It would be better if we died. Why, why didn't you just kill us in Egypt? They literally were saying this to the Lord as the Lord has them at the front doorstep of something miraculous and amazing and secure, he was going to show them where they're supposed to be and who they really are. And at the very doorstep, they said, Nah, I'm scared about that because the world looks pretty dangerous over there. So we're going to make our own plan, if that's cool. It's ridiculous. Yet this is us. They had an assumption that God could not handle their enemies, so they feared the unknown and ran right back into the arms of distractions and deceptions. 
And that's where our man Caleb steps in. In Caleb 13.30, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb quiets the people's lack of trust in God and basically says, as Paul does later, what then shall we say to these things? Right? These things that want to kill us and oppress us. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That passage goes on, and i read it later, but for time we're going to move on. But Caleb places his trust, his faith, and his worship in his creator. I'm sure that Caleb was scared as well. Let's not just think that he looked over there and said, Ah, I'm not worried. I'm sure he was scared. It would be a normal human reaction to be frightened by the unknown. But it was Caleb's response to his fear that makes the difference. Caleb believed, even as he wandered in the wilderness, that God was faithful and that he was a loving deliverer. He believed in God's word. He believed in God's word, his promises. He remembered them and believed them. This is consistent with what Jesus said as Jesus was wandering in the desert or in the wilderness and the devil is tempting him. And Jesus says, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is his holy scripture. The breath of God. Just as Jesus said, Caleb believed that when we are faced with the giants of this world, when we are faced with the fear of the unknown, when we are challenged by sin and destruction, the only sufficient response is believing in God's word, is trusting in him. The wrong response is looking for another distraction. When you're opposed, when you're challenged, and you need to get out of a situation, you need to stop thinking about it, or you need to fix something quick, where are we running? We run to the world. We run from fear, and we look for comfort in something that we can control and obtain right away. Right? Instead of being patient and waiting on the word of the Lord, we rush for a quick fix, and we don't trust him. Now, I'm contemplating whether saying this or not, but I'm just going to say it. YOLO. There are consequences to this. There are consequences to sin. Yes, God is gracious. Trust me, I am in agreement that our God is loving and that all of my sin, guilt, and shame has been placed on Jesus, but we need to remember that there are consequences for sin. God hates sin. Did you know that? Hates it. I read this morning that there is, this is a C.H. Spurgeon quote, that there's more evil in a drop of sin than in an ocean of affliction. God hates your sin. You know, people say the opposite of, of hate is love, so how could God be a God of love? If love is his character, right? 
God, God has said, I am the God of love. In essence, that's who God is. He's loving. So how could he hate something? Well, he can because hate is not the opposite of love. Hate can be good. I hate cancer. I hate human sex trafficking. I hate these things. That's good. I should hate those things. They're evil. The opposite of love is sin. And that's why God hates it. And God is a God of justice. And so that sin goes to the court of law and is punished because he's a good judge. And you'll see, as we continue in Numbers 14, that there is a punishment. Then all the congregation raised, this is 14 beginning verse 1, then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Listen to them. Or would that we died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land that they just saw was full of milk and honey? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They're ignoring God. The God who has delivered them. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation and of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore off their clothes. And they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. And the land that flows with milk and honey... Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Then the congregation said to stone them with stones. This was God's people. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting. In the midst of the rebellion, God shows up. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will your people Will this people despise me? The Lord says, how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I've done among them. Listen, Christ's covenant, hear these words, okay, please. How long will you despise me? How long will you not trust me? I have done so many things for you. I will not strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. I will make for you a nation greater and mightier than they. God delivers these people. And even in God's patience and slowness to anger, he has done everything for him. They still choose to place their faith in the world. Again, sound familiar? God in his loving mercy does lend an ear and listens to Moses' response. Because God had said that the punishment for their, their disobedience, the ten spies, was going to be death. And then Moses steps in and intercedes. He says, Lord, no, please. Please, Lord, do not kill this nation. You are slow to anger. And he starts saying all these things. And then the Lord says, as we fast forward, 
I have pardoned according to your word. So he listens to Moses as he intercedes for them. But truly, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have yet put me to test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. These ten spies are going to face a consequence on this earth for their sin. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, the one who spoke up and quieted the grumblers, because he has a different spirit. And he has followed me fully. I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Fast forward to 36. And then the men whom Moses sent out to spy the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up the bad report about the land, died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spout the land, only Joshua and Caleb lived. The ones who were faithful. You see, the Israelites' lack of faith and trust in the Almighty, Almighty God, the God who had delivered them from slavery, brought them to the doorway of the promised land, these men were punished to death. Caleb, whom God said had a different spirit, would inherit the promised land. If you think about Caleb in this situation, who goes out to the promised land with 11 of his boys, related, cousins in a sense, and he goes out, checks out the promised land, 10 of them say, this is not going to work. Come back, those 10 convince the entire congregation. So now, the, basically, the whole nation is saying, listen, this is what we got to do now. This is what we should, we should, how we should go forward. What would be the easy thing for Caleb to do? Yeah, you're right. The easy thing is to go with the majority. The easy thing is to go with the crowd. The easy thing is to believe what everybody else believes so that way you won't be persecuted for your beliefs. The easy thing to do is to do what everybody else is doing. That way you don't suffer the consequences of being left out, the consequences of being different, the consequences of standing up for what you believe is really right. Caleb easily could have said, okay, yeah, I mean, if, if that's what everybody's going to do, fine, because I don't want to get stoned. That's the easy thing. The easy choice, the easy action is always found with the majority. It's easier to function in the accordance of the majority because it, there's less chance of hardship. It's easier to agree with the world's standards of morality, right? Because if we go with the crowd, we stand little chance of being hated. If you're struggling with something because you're scared of the world's perception of you, if you're scared for taking a stand for what God's word said, then you're following into the same trap that these grumbling Israelites did. Listen, Jesus told us the world's going to hate us. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, they're going to hate you. People say all the time, Christians are hypocrites. Heard that? Well, we are. Because I'm a hypocrite right now telling you all these things. Because the reality is, is that I struggle to trust God every day. And we are hypocrites, but the difference between the rest of the hypocrites is that we acknowledge that we are. We acknowledge that. 
and we acknowledge that our own failure and our job as, as hypocrites, as Christians, is to preach that God sent his son to take the punishment for our hypocrisy. Every action or choice that we make is based on your perception or assumption of what the best outcome for you is. Where's God left in that? The question is whether or not you trust God's outcome for you by trusting in him and believing that his plan, his outcome for you, is better than your own. See, from the very first day, our, the human sin, the very first sin is, I don't believe you, God. I'm going to believe the world. And so when God says, don't do this, and we say, yeah, but I really want to, and it feels good, and it's good, and we, so we do it anyway, we're not trusting that his plan for us is to abstain from this thing because it's better for us. Caleb made the hard choice that day. Caleb made the right choice. Why? Because Caleb trusted in the words of God that he promised to deliver them into that land. His assumption of the outcome of this choice was based in his trust in God's word. He believed God's word was true. In essence, he used a God filter. Now, I use this word filter in the way that we, our culture uses, uses it today, right? So everything you do is based on your previous assumptions and beliefs about an outcome, okay? So what we do is saying, I'm going to make this choice using this filter, meaning it changes my perception of what I really believe. And so what Caleb, does, Caleb says, God, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure about this. We don't, that's not recorded there. But I'm imagining if he's a regular human being that he's scared. And all of a sudden, he places a filter on his eyes and says, God's word is true. Just go from there. He applies this filter, which I believe is God's word, to his life. Listen, it is natural for you to not trust God, okay? We were born with original sin. And so your natural state is going to be, whoa, Lord. I'm not going to do that, or I'm going to do this, sorry. But if we apply God's word to that very attitude, guess what? Our actions change. Because God uses his words to change our hearts. That day, Caleb worshiped the Lord by trusting in him. That's worship, trusting in God. You can do that on Monday morning at 8 a.m. You can worship God by trusting in him. His action and choice to obey God was based on his faith and his promise and God's promise of deliverance. We all live our lives and do everything we do based on whatever filters we apply. The Israelites chose not to trust God that day. They were not remembering God's words that he promised to deliver them and protect them. Do you believe that, by the way, real quick? Do you guys believe that God's going to protect you and provide for you? I know for a lot of us, that seems impossible given our current situation. Don't fall in the trap of the Israelites. This is why scripture is necessary. Trusting in themselves and the promises of the world instead of God, this is what the Israelites did. They forgot about scripture. I'll try to end quickly here. I was having a conversation with one of my best friends. His name's Joey. And I was talking about a struggle I was really going through. And I was talking about another person I was talking to, and they said the way to get, that you need to get back into the groove of things is, is, is prayer, fellowship with other believers, and God's word. We call these the means of grace. 
And I said, man, I just, I can't, the only time that I ever feel like I have any sense of value is when I'm reading God's word. And then I said this out loud. I said, I've never felt like I've needed God's word before. And I stopped. And I see him looking at me. And I've worked in ministry for 15 years. I've been a pastor for five. And last week, I said out loud, I've never felt like I've needed God's word before. So if I'm in that position, I'm guessing you might be too. You might not feel like you need God's word. And you might come a day where he brings you to your knees. Let it not come to that. Let us run to God's word today and understand that that's what we need. We so often live by sight and not faith. We see this world and we say, I don't trust God. The Lord has a perfect plan for each of us, his children. We can claim the inheritance of the promised land. But to claim the inheritance of the promised land, what do you have to do? Trust in his word. How can you trust in his word if you don't know what it says? A lot of people say to me, I can't hear God. He doesn't talk to me. I don't understand his will for me. My first thought is always, well, you're probably not reading your Bible. Because I know that's why I don't trust the Lord often. It's because I'm not listening to him. Every choice that I make, if I believe God is real, needs to be approached with the belief that God desires for me to be obedient to his word and to trust in it. That's the filter that we need to apply to our lives. He knows what is best for me because he created me and he loves me. This is what we call another churchy phrase, the will of God. Heard that before? The will of God means to live according to his scripture. And God wants us to know him, to know, understand, obey, and enjoy his will. And God's will isn't punishment. It may feel like it. God's will isn't punishment, it's nourishment. And God's will will never lead you where his grace can't protect you. He'll never lead you into a situation where he's not going to provide for you if you trust him. And so you would probably say, okay, preacher, prove it. Prove it to me that God has any inclination towards me. Prove to me that God is good. Prove to me that he loves me. Where is this proof of the love and protection? Well, I would say he proved it in the act of crucifying his own son. That he crucified his own son to cover our guilt, the shame you might be feeling, the sin that you are living in. He crucified his son so that we have the freedom now to leave that guilt, sin, and shame behind us and obey him. You can do that today. We have the freedom to trust and obey. Because I know, I often think, how could I ever have a relationship with this holy God for as filthy as I am? And it's because God has a plan to remove, God had a plan to remove that guilt, sin, and shame. And it's because that he is the God of the promises that he delivered that guilt, sin, and shame by punishing his son in our place. You deserve the wrath of God. I deserve the wrath of God. We deserve eternal damnation. But we didn't suffer. We're not going to suffer for it because that punishment was placed on Jesus. The reason that God's people would eventually make it to the promised land, and they did. Not all of them, but they did. 
is because Moses pleaded for them that day. He was an intercessor. God listened to Moses and saw the faithfulness of Caleb, and even though the people had breached their covenant with God, God remained faithful and kept his side of the deal. You see, the fulfillment of that seed planted in numbers in Christ, fully bloomed flower, salvation, reconcile of a sinful people to a holy God. And it's beautiful. God fulfilled his plan of deliverance, as we know. Not just as the Israelites, but all of his chosen by placing our sin on the shoulders of his son. So we see the deliverance and fulfillment now as we look at the cross. Which delivered us from slavery of sin and brought us into the freedom of the promised land which is found in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I'm grateful that your word tells us that your Holy Spirit can interpret the groanings of our hearts when we don't know the right words to say to you. Because often, Lord, I am left speechless when I think of how overwhelmed my life is with the world, how often I misplace my worship, how often I do not trust you, Lord, and I pray for forgiveness today. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, may I run to your word often and always. May I run to it and believe it and trust it. May I tell others about it. Thank you that the guilt and shame that often creeps up, Lord, thank you for reminding me, even this morning, that you have taken that and put a nail through it on the cross through your hands, Jesus. Lord, give us faith that we would see how deep your love is for us, Lord. And that while even in the midst of our sin, you called us to life. Lord, change our hearts by your Holy Spirit today. We, Lord, we gather now and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.